This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. Joby, you just keep coming back. Does that mean we're friends? Or does is it just because, like, you know, we're both wearing the black V-neck? I don't really know. I don't have the denim jacket, though. For those that aren't watching this on YouTube or Rumble, like, is do I have to get one of those for us to keep being friends? I don't really know what the rules are. Nah, man. We're going to be friends no matter what, but I can get you a, a denim jacket. Okay, so I will see you here before too terribly long, and I will hold you to that because I've had people promise me things before, but I've never been promised something nearly as fancy as a denim jacket. So I'm I'm holding no. you to that. Okay, it's not very so, fancy. <clears throat> well, it just depends on where you're from, and you're in Florida, so apparently that's like a tuxedo there in Florida, according to the people that I know down there. So before we get into this, normally. This is all questions from from donors and things like that. But last time you came on here, I was very, very selfish and I didn't ask any questions from donors because we had a lot of important stuff to get to. Today's is going to be fully donor questions, except for the first one, because I'm still a little bit selfish. And it's because you said something very subtle and very interesting in a recent sermon. So this will be coming out several weeks from now. And you've told me this personally as well, but you said that God doesn't owe you a sermon. Now, whenever you said that in front of your congregation, you said you you paused for a little bit and you even said, like, I, I don't want to talk too much about this because it makes me upset, upset, like in, in a good emotional way. Yeah. But, you know, you've talked a lot about before that, you know, you'll go out to the woods, you'll hunt and you'll prepare your sermon and you never come in with expectations. You just say, well, I'll let you take it from there. So why did it get you choked up? And why is that something that's so important for you? Because some pastors, they just plan out their entire year and they just make it happen. But for you, you kind of just let go and let God, even though I hate that particular phrase. Yeah, man. I mean, it's one of it's a demonstration of God's grace in my own personal life in a very tangible way. So on Monday morning, I'll climb into the tree stand. I'll pray until the sun gets up. And then about the time I can see, I open my Bible app. I have some idea of the direction that I'm going, and I just pray every week, God, they're your sheep. They're not my sheep. I'm the under-shepherd. I work for you. What do you want to say to your people? And and a lot of times, I don't even have a good sense, and, and I'm a verse-by-verse guy, expository mm-hmm. preacher. I don't even have necessarily a good sense of like the shape of the sermon, and then I just start working through the text, kind of writing my own commentary, basically. Here's what this verse means. Here's what it says. Here's some thoughts I have. And sure enough, so far, every week for the last 11 or 12 years that I've been the lead pastor of this church, I walk out of the tree stand and I've got a really good sense of the sermon that I'm going to preach. And all I mean is he does not owe me that. I mean, Jesus promises that he's going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit would reveal and remind us the things that Jesus has taught us. And, but he doesn't owe it to you. I mean, he just really doesn't. I mean, you, you teach and preach, whether it's Sunday school or at a prison or whatever. And you know what it's like to just sit down with a blank piece of paper and be like, all right. I mean, the Bible's kind of a lot, you know, and I don't know what these people need. And it's a real interaction of his grace in my own life that he would give me a sermon. And so, and, and he called me to preach. So the fact that he has been so faithful um, to do that for me, it just it, it can get me a little, you know, a little emotional experience, experiencing a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus in my own personal life in regards to the spirit of God doing exactly what Jesus promised he would do in your life. 
I appreciate you sharing that. I mean, you mentioned the stuff that I've even done in prison and I talked about before, because I mean, look, Joby, we're 500 plus episodes in here. And so like, I've, I've had to explain that to people like imagine sitting in front of your computer screen and there's a blank document in front of you and you have to turn that into an hour's worth of content. And then you rinse right. and repeat that and do that, you know, 500 more times. That's essentially what the show has done since 2017. But I remember when I did that, that stuff at the Lewisburg prison earlier this year, that was one of the first times where it's like, look, I'm going to do my part, God. Okay. I'm going to set this up. Like, whereas if I go from soup to nuts and don't stroke out or something like that, that it's at least going to sound good coming out of my face hole, but you, whatever this, these words do, that's on you. So I'm just going to faithfully say the words and do my level of preparation. And it sounds like you do the same there, but I have follow-up questions, but again, I, I allowed myself one selfish question. So now we're going to go to the donor questions here. And this one's from Eric. He's actually Eric from the forging table. And this is a smart sounding question. So it may not be that smart, but it's going to be difficult even for me to read. So here we go. Is scripture the word of God or properly interpreted scripture, the word of God? In other words, is it ontologically the word of God or is it teleologically the word of God. So for those of you out there that have trouble reading like me, I guess ontologically like that basically means in substance or essence and teleologically means basically in purpose or meaning. I would reread the question, but it was hard enough for me to get through it the first time. <laughs> Hopefully you understood what I said. I would encourage Eric not to fall into the tyranny of the or, but to embrace the <laughs> okay. genius of the and. Okay. Because Isaiah 55 says that the word of God never goes out in vain. The Apostle Paul says there are, pre there are people preaching the word of God with all the wrong motives, and yet God is using them unto his glory. So he makes it sound like that, the, that ontologically it's the word of God. But then you get the enemy is tempting Jesus in the desert, and he's twisting scripture in his own way. But I, don't, I still don't think that that makes scripture any less scripture. Um. But I don't in any way want to diminish how important it is to rightly divide the whole counsel of God. And you can't just like peek and poke and grab a verse and, and put it on a coffee mug and then it mean what you think it means. In fact, you had a really great conversation with that last, again, I don't know when this is aired, but I just listened to this morning, the, the guy that talks about the, the canon and how it was written and all of that. Yeah, so, Benjamin yeah, Lear. Yeah, you can't just pull verses out of context for them to mean what make you feel a certain way. So I'm not buying into that. I uh, write interpretation according to the meta narrative of the scripture is very, very important. However, there's something different. There's something supernatural about God's word. It's not just a book that even has to be understood rightly. It's more powerful than that. So just the word itself is in a different category than any other kind of truth claim. Okay, so one quick follow-up to that, so I'm violating my own rules here, but it's my show, so suck it, guys. Um, the Ooh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but you know what? It's okay. We're friends. Um, there it is. Okay, so you, you say the and or thing, which makes sense to me, but I'm a very black and white guy. I, if I have gradations in my life, I try to get rid of those and try to end up in the black or the white category, the yes or the no, the, the this or that category. But I keep running into these 
times, like with this question, but also when you talk about Calvinism, Ar- Calvinism, Armenianism, those types of things to where like, wait, is it the sovereignty of God or is it free will? And it's like, no, it's, it's both. And you're never going to understand it. Help me and help the guys in the audience, Joby, that are like me, that we don't like gradation. We don't like fuzzy. We like clarity and we like truth. And truth seems to be a categorical thing. Does that make sense? It does. It does. It does. <clears throat> but you could, um, you can have a misapplied understanding and somehow God still use it in miraculous ways in your own life. I mean, you want to see who the greatest proof textures in the world are? The New Testament writers. I mean, they grab some verses out of Psalms and you're like, is that what that meant? And then they apply it to the crucifixion of Jesus. I'm like, well, it must because the Bible interprets itself that way. But I mean, the key is, is you should trust God's word. And if you don't understand exactly what it means at this point, no problem. Uh, one is that even Peter says that the writing of Paul is hard to understand. Two, you have the spirit of God and only he can expose the word of God to you. I can hmm. expose you to the word of God and be like, this book was written in this time and this is the audience and this is the setting and here's what it says. But it's never going to really illuminate your life until the spirit of God does what he does in the word of God for you. Like uh, you were talking about this very recently, probably a forging table. And even though I've told you this a bunch of times, your problem with Luke 15 and the prodigal son, you're always team older son. Until just recently, man, the spirit of God illuminated in your life that the older son is just as lost as the younger son. Just he's lost to religion and not rebellion. So if, if there's something about the word that you don't understand yet, just keep trusting it and keep reading it because God wants you to understand it at the right time, depending on where you are in your life. When I've, I've doing some forging table prep right now, cause obviously everyone listening knows that we're in Matthew. So I can't remember if it was uh, Matthew 16 or 17, but it's where basically Peter is called and, you know, he's, he's basically Jesus saying, you know, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church and all those different things. And yeah. it was just interesting as I was digging into those scriptures, it's like Peter trusted in Jesus, the dude, but not in Jesus, the savior, Jesus, the Christ necessarily. And then all of a sudden he was just given that and which threw me for a loop again, whenever you get into these, like, you know, is it sovereignty is, are these things given? Do we actually make choices? And I don't really want to peel back all those layers right now. Cause we got another question. So do you have anything else to say on that before we move on? Yeah, that's a good one. Cause he says when, uh, that's Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus says, you know, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus clears it all up and says, this is not your own idea. This was given to you by my heavenly father. So that's a, uh, that's a good point as no matter how many commentaries you have and how much you try to study God's word, until the Spirit of God illuminates things for you to see, you're just not going to see them in the way that you do when God teaches you His Word. All right, very good. Well, let's move on to the next donor-based question. Again, guys, if you are a monthly donor to Undaunted Life, you are able to get into the Q&A mailbag for the one, the only, Joby Martin. So here we go. This is from Chris. What are your thoughts on hell? I know this is difficult because it's not super explicit in scripture, but I've heard everything from its eternal absence from God, which never sits well with me since God is everywhere at all times, to it's God's eternal wrath, which seems hard to align for me, but I guess can be shoehorned in as the presence of a single attribute of God, 
Two, it's a temporary till God's final judgment, and then it doesn't exist type of a thing. The passages of it being burned up, consumed, or destroyed, implying that there is either eternal life with God or a nothingness void post God's judgment for all who aren't saved. So kind of a convoluted question, but I think you kind of got it. Everyone's yep. kind of got their own views on hell and what that is. Like, oh, is Gehenna like a real place? Is there re really, you know, gnashing of teeth and those types of things? Or is it kind of like, oh, Jesus is the vine, but he's not actually a vine. There are a lot of people that are confused about hell. So clear it up for us. Yeah. So the Valley of Gehenna uh, is it, it, it runs uh, on the opposite side of Jerusalem as the Kidron Valley. And it was the trash heap in the first century. And I think what Jesus is doing there is describing an actual, literal, physical, eternal place by pointing to something that people in the first century could get their head around. Because there were fires burning all the time. There were nasty vultures and birds. There were dogs fighting over scraps. That's gnashing of teeth. And he is saying an eternal separation from God is that. So is it eternal? Yes. Is it actual? Yes. Is it the wrath of God poured out? Yes. And it's at least as bad as all the physical descriptions in the Bible, like an eternal lake of fire of which you are forever burning, but never burn up. There is nowhere in the scripture that it seems to indicate that you cease to exist because that would be a mercy. It is, it is God giving humanity what you want on this earth. If you want a relationship with him, I've got the greatest news of all time. You can have it through the blood of Jesus and then live in that imperfection forever. You want to reject him? I've got the most dangerous news you've ever heard in your life. God will turn you over to that if you reject him. And I think the people that describe hell as the absence of the presence of God, I think more technically what they mean is the absence of any good attribute from God. So take away all love, all beauty, all truth, all of those things. And hell is just full of people who have decided that they have rejected God and will be eternally living with that consequence, which would be nothing but the most horrific thing you could ever think of. So this might get a little bit philosophical here, but in line with that, my follow-up would be, and let me tease this out, is it quote-unquote you that is suffering or is it you in a higher state? So what I mean by that is I've heard the argument before that like when an animal is suffering and dying, cause I'm a weirdo. I like watching animals kill other animals on Instagram. I don't know. It's just fun to me, but you, you, you see these animals. So it's a Komodo dragon that's eating a baby deer or something like that. But people are saying, look, that baby deer does not have consciousness. So it doesn't know that it is suffering because there is no it, there is no that animal. It's just an animal that is literally the firing of neurons, causing it to, to do whatever it can to survive. And so as humans, we are of a higher level of consciousness. So is it similar to the suffering of if I were to take this knife and slice my finger off right now? Or is it like a higher, more potent version of suffering? I hope that question makes sense. It does make sense. Every... Um you know, I, I don't have a full list of every verse on the on hell or Sheol or Gehenna in the Bible in front of me. But when Jesus tells the parable about Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man's in hell, he was the, the key here is he was not only suffering physically because he's not just a physical being, 
but he was suffering heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was suffering mm. because he he was worried about people. He was separated from people. He could see a place that he could never get to. And so I think it is a total and complete eternal suffering in every way you could think or imagine. And yes, it is you that is suffering. Well, that just sounds awful. So let's just yeah, roll so that into another kind of gospel focused question. So this is a question from Logan. How do I know if I believe enough to be saved? Is there a point when you can have too much doubt while still considering yourself a believer and would cause you to be unsaved? Um, no, Jesus says that the faith of the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. So I would say it is not the quantity of faith, but the object of your faith that matters. You could have an infinite amount of faith in this temporary world, and it would be infinitely more powerful for you to have Mark nine kind of faith where the dude says, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That is the context where Jesus says it's a, the faith the size of a mustard seed that you say to this mountain move. Here's how much faith it takes to be saved. That you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, somehow that counted for you. See the man on the middle cross said I could come. And you confess with your mouth, he is my Lord. If you look at the life of the disciples, you know what the thing they had the hardest time believing at first was the resurrection. I mean, back to Matthew 16, right after G right after Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus then makes all the promises that he makes about I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he lays out the gospel. He's like, I'm going to be crucified, dead, buried on the third day, resurrected. Peter rebukes Jesus for that statement. In that moment, you would say, well, Peter can't be a Christian. Well, he was just called the rock. And upon his public testimony of the gospel, the whole church was going to be built. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So I don't think Peter, I know that Peter is not in and out of salvation. That when he declared that you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he is taking whatever his limited understanding of the gospel, and he is putting his faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. According to Romans 10, 9, and many, 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 many other verses, when you do that, you're saved. And from that moment on, you continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So not only will you grow in an understanding theologically of how that works, but you also deepen that relationship with Jesus on your way. And the opposite of faith is not doubt. See John chapter 6. They were all about ready to peace out on Jesus when Jesus says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And everybody starts leaving. And remember, Jesus asked the disciples, you don't want to leave too, do you? The reason he asked is because that they wanted to leave. They're like, this is hard, boss. What, it, this doesn't even make sense. And he didn't explain it. He could have explained it. He could have been like, man, listen, I'm going to die, be resurrected. There's a good thing called communion one day, and it's going to make sure that you're rooted in the gospel. He doesn't. He just says, you don't want to leave too. And Peter's answer helps me get through the places when my head kind of goes haywire with doubts. Peter says, to whom shall we go? You're the only one that offers eternal life. So here's what this means. Mm -hmm. By faith, when you have doubts and unanswered questions, you just pick it up, follow after Jesus. By faith. You do that long enough, one day, you have no more doubts. Not next Tuesday, but when you get to heaven, all your doubts will be gone because your faith becomes sight. But the, the crucial element, according to the whole New Testament, 
is do you believe or trust or commit to, the word in Greek is pistuo, um, do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross and he says it is finished, that that counted for you, that you are trusting his life, death, and resurrection to be the propitiation for your sin? And if that, when that answer is yes, then you have put your faith in Christ and you are saved. And you can't lose your salvation because it's not yours to lose. The real question is, can God lose one of his kids? That answer is no. Well, very good. And, and I think back to the to whom will I go thing. I've thought about that before. So let's say that somebody one day proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that the crucifixion was a lie. That that like it was completely fabricated. They they can show evidence that this never happened. Blah blah blah. I've had that you know parallel universe conversation to where it's like, well then what worldview do I go to? Do I become a Jew because I believe in a creator God? Like do the Hindus somehow have it right because do they have an innumerable number of gods that just kind of like work into whatever situation is currently you know a part of our life? But that's the thing is assuming that that doesn't happen, and you do believe that the resurrection is resurrection was a historical event what is your other option? Like, right. you know, cause some people will just kind of put their personal preferences on top of whatever Christian Christian sounding thing that they want to do. But that's a good question for a lot of people is like, where would I go other than here? Now that right. doesn't answer every theological question and it doesn't answer, you know, every question about how we should live a, a good Christian life, but at least gets us off to a good start. Um, I want to be brief with this one because it attaches to what we talked about here at the very beginning. But Levi uh, was basically asking like, how do you go about writing sermons? You, you've already described that to us, but mm -hmm. I guess uh, his question is basically, how do you structure it? Because some people won't really understand that. Listen to your sermons. Yeah. Like, how do you go from a, a, an app and a tree stand to 60 minutes of preaching? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then also, what resources would you recommend to other people that are trying to prepare in the same way? Um, <clears throat> so I just answer. I usually, I almost always have just a text that I'm teaching. And if you just answer these three questions, you'll have a pretty good skeleton of a sermon. What happened so what, and now what? So the what happened is Jesus walked on water, Peter got out on the water and sank. Okay, well, so what? Well, everything seemed to be going fine until he took his eyes off of Jesus. But that's where most people stop. At 11.22, I preach to the action step, to the now what. So now that's where I try to make the personal application. Where are the places in your life where by faith you're out on water that Christ called you to, but you have a tendency to take your eyes off of him to use that that scripture. If you just answer those three questions, you're way down the road. Um, resources that I use, I use a whole bunch of different commentaries. Um, I've got this expository commentary right here. When you were over here, we were talking about it. What I like about this one is it's written for preachers. It's not just written for um the academics of it, but there are yeah, illustrations. That's the, uh, the crossway, the crossway ESV yeah. commentary for those that, that can't see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those are your those are your buddies. So that's really good. Honestly, um, it, I think it's a, especially if you're new at preaching, it's a really good idea to listen to a lot of preachers. It's just mm -hmm. good. Uh, I mean, it's basically especially. I, I mean, there needs to be a lot more prayer and study, and a lot less copy and paste for sure. But there's a bunch of people, especially young guys, that I give them all of my notes and all of my resources and say, listen, man, if you just to, just to start practicing, make this your own. Don't use my my own personal stories as if they are yours. But man, feel free to use this. Nothing's new under the sun. 
But I listen to a lot of other preachers, basically like verbal commentaries, you know, to just learn not just what the text says, but how they present it in a way that's engaging and understandable. Okay, very good. Well, this next question, it's a very short question, but it brings in a lot of different things. Uh, it brings in a lot of ways that we talk about things in modernity and how we categorize things and power dynamics and oppressor oppressed. So there's a lot packed into a short question, but this is from Ryan. This is the Ryan from the forging table. Okay. Did David rape Bathsheba? No. Okay. Why not? Um, actually before, before you get, before you get there, let me say where I've landed on this issue because I kind of got, I didn't get caught flat-footed with this, but I've said before that if you say that David raped Bathsheba, I, I, I can totally be down with that because in that day, a woman being brought before the king, right? she was basically without choices. She was without free will at that moment, lest her, you know, she lose her head in that moment. And so was she sexually attracted to King David and she gave herself to him and they had this, you know, thriving sexual relationship, albeit very immoral sexual relationship, perhaps. But I tend to think that she was brought there against her will, not kicking and screaming, but she's like, I better do this because I like living. So that that's kind of where I've landed on it. But but you say no. Well, yeah, I, I don't disagree with any of those things that you said. So let's let's can we use a different example that we know that we know that we know what the answer is? Because it'll be yeah. very similar. So the woman caught in the act of adultery in John chapter eight. I've heard the same argument about that woman. Like first century, she's probably leaning on another guy just for survival. She was probably being taken advantage of. And I don't necessarily disagree with any of that kind of stuff. Okay. And the last thing in the world I'm trying to do is blame a victim, you know, or beat up somebody mm -hmm. in a very vulnerable situation. But we know for a fact in John chapter eight that Jesus tells her that she was sinning. So he answers that question. Right. So my problem with folks like on that one is so so you think, you know, our modern understanding of power dynamics that has a greater authority in your mind than the verse where John says that Jesus said, go and leave your life of sin. So I, I, I would want to, I wouldn't want to abdicate wholeheartedly Bathsheba's responsibility for her own agency in her life. Um, because there were many people that were put in very, very difficult situations and it did cost them their life, you know? Um, but you are, but I don't disagree with what you're saying whatsoever. If the king orders you to do a thing, that's not like they met at a nightclub together and she was just cheating on, on her husband. So it is, it is different. Um, but I would just be careful to read all of our, you know, modern psychological advances and sociological understandings all back into the text. I would first and foremost, just read the text for what it says. Okay, very good. Well, let's go to the last question of the day. We're making this a tight half hour today. Uh, so this is a quick question and why. So this is from Matt. Who is your favorite Christian historical figure and why? Oh, man. Um, probably, I don't know, probably Wilberforce, man. There's a guy that mm -hmm. leveraged all of, I mean, bro, you want to talk about a guy that would be loving some undaunted life. 
here's a guy that loved the Lord like crazy. And he, in his mind, he had no division between like what his uh, secular life was and his, you know, private devotional life. That That's not the way he lived. He was like, I'm just one man and I'm following Jesus and this is what I have to do. And I'm going to let the world feel the weight of me and I'm just going to let them deal with it. And uh, in some areas, it made him kind of popular. In some areas, people wanted to kill him, but he didn't care. He seemed to be living a life. And he also didn't seem, what was crazy is it, it's not like he had this political agenda that he, that he used his faith to support. That's not what he did. It seemed to be the exact opposite. He was just... He just had this faith in Christ and was moved to follow. And then there were some repercussions and there was a bunch of uh, biblical justice that happened because, because he was just a man following hard after Jesus. So Wilberforce. Dude was a gangster, but Hey, that's uh that wraps up all my questions. Anything else you want to get off your chest? No, man. Appreciate you. All right. We'll talk again soon. Peace. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also we want to thank the band Holy Name for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Perpetual. Petua, which is off their self-titled debut album on Face Down Records. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.